Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, here with my great friends, and I'll be kind to both of them because we're recording over the holidays. Um, my wonderful friends, Edward Niedermeyer. Hello, Edward. Hey, Alex. And Kirsten Korosek. Hey. And on this episode, we're going to do basically a year-end wrap-up. Is, is, that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, a year-end wrap-up for, for all of us and everything that happened in the future of transportation. So, Alex, you had a big year, personally. Uh, why, why must we talk about me? Uh, well, I mean, you're, you're the most interesting of us, Alex. Yeah, true. Uh, let's see. I uh, took a position uh, with Argo AI, which is very secret. Um, and uh, I also uh, um, I picked up not one but two Teslas, and I drive them a lot of miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, my movie just came out, uh, Apex, The Secret Race Across America. And so that's, well, my year's been pretty boring. What about you, you two? Twenty nineteen will always, for me now, be the year that I realize that um, there's such thing as a director of special operations job in uh, the autonomous vehicle space. It was, it was definitely an, an inspirational thing to learn. Uh, you know, uh, I have read a lot of books about like reinvention, disruption, and like pivoting. Um, and I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if I've lived up some of those books, but you know, there's, um, <laughs> I think that you could write a book on reinvention and pivoting. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I, the fact that I'm still, I guess the, the father of the human driving association is, uh, interesting. You know, I've done a number of screenings of the apex film, um, for friends in the autonomous vehicle space. And I'd say 99% of people say amazing, uh, the sensors, the planning, like the uh, you know, sense plan act, you know, those are the three phases of, you know, what uh, an autonomous vehicle has to do. And a lot of people folks are like, wow, Alex, you know, we had no idea how much work and that kind of quantitative planning went into the, the record. And then there's the 1% who are like, why the fuck, who the fuck is this guy? And, and what does he have to offer to improve automotive safety? So, um, you know, I've been, I've had to walk a fine line. Um, so, so there, we'll are, see what there are, are you saying there are, there are people who are, who are hating on your creative work, Alex? That's definitely <laughs> yeah. not something that I experienced in 2019. Yeah. No, <laughs> not at all. When I always say, I'm like, listen, you know, the events are depicted are 14 years old and I, and I work in automotive safety now. Also, it was very biased of you um, to not use a Tesla for your cross country. Uh, movie, um, even though it they was. didn't, ex- even though they didn't exist back then, it was still very, very ugly and biased. Very and you were probably paid by big oil to not use a Tesla. Yeah. Well, you know, um, yeah. Uh, who knows? <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll do them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you. You know, my life is boring. Well, Ed, you also um, had a big year, and you want to talk about that? Um, yeah. I mean, I uh, I, f- I finished my book and published it, which was um, the biggest thing that's happened to me in a while. Um, that, that thing, that project consumed my, my life for a number of years. Um, and was, you know, and it's interesting, you know, even now just seeing since the book has come out, um, the roller coasters in the Tesla story just keep going. And, um, I'm not sure people fully realize how hard it was to finish the book and commit to sort of the, you know, the way I was portraying this company, um, knowing that, you know, things would go be wildly euphoric and also dismally, you know, 
pessimistic, um, all within, you know, six months of, of, of the book actually coming out. Uh, that was, <laughs> was really tough. And I, I think so far, uh, you know, generally it's holding up, although, you know, with the stock now at, at $420 a share, um, I understand some people think differently. Right. Well, we will see. Are you saying that you didn't know how to end the book because no one knows how Tesla will end? It was more than just end the book. I mean, um, it's right. Every story has to have a narrative arc. And without knowing the ending, it's hard to draw that arc, right? It's like it's like trying to plot a chart without knowing the endpoint. True. So um, that was challenging. But I did, it fits sort of my, my big theme for 2019, um, which is that, um, you know, and, and this sort of also comes from my – the other big thing that, that happened for me this year um, was going on a, a driverless ride, being the first journalist to do a driverless ride. Uh, with Waymo in um, Chandler, Arizona, um, that and I ended up writing two stories, and I realized, you know, one of them was was an extra crunch, so it's like paywalled, and so not as many people read it. Um, but uh, in addition, but a highly engaged audience read it. So to be clear. yeah, no, and then apparently the numbers were quite good, so I'm I'm happy about that. But but there was the the story about the ride itself, and then there was also I talked to a number of people on the UX uh, the user experience research team at Waymo, and. Um, this is sort of it encapsulates my you know my feeling about a lot of stuff in the space, which is that um, a lot of technical progress has been made. In the case of Waymo, you know they have a level of confidence in their system that, at least in Chandler, um, they're they're uh, uh, having driverless rides. Oh, and by the way, something that is new that I, I think I'm allowed to say um, is that Waymo is actually charging for driverless rides now. Um, oh, so we're bra- breaking a little news there. Um, so, so, but, but that also, you know, brings the other side of it, which is that I think they have a long ways to go before this incredibly advanced technology um, is a real product. And I think that's a theme that we're seeing a lot of in the space right now. Mm-hmm. Well, enough about you. <laughs> well, How about you, Kirsten? Just kidding. Um, I had, I, I did not have such an exciting year as either one of you. I, let's see, primarily traveled a lot. And took care of Alex's various vehicles, <laughs> and um, that was pretty much it. Oh, and and I, but I will say that um, the probably the big highlight, the one thing that I worked on the most was the mobility conference that we had that TechCrunch had in July, and it was a one day event, and we're going to have it again in 2020. So I took a lot of pride in that, and hope to at least match it, if not make it better. Um, in 2020, but but yeah, I mean, really, it was all about settling into TechCrunch and and trying to write about the the future of transportation and provide hopefully some insight and analysis to people. Also launched a newsletter, so that was I had no big you know job change or or book coming out, but but that was that was it. And what I found, um, I guess for my theme of 2019, since we're talking about that, we'll dig in a little bit more is how many timelines were punted on and how all of a sudden advanced driver assistance systems became cool again. And discussions about robo taxis, uh, at least in terms of the commercial aspirations that people had were pulled back a bit. And that was uh, over, you know, a, a arc that began probably a little bit before CES, but was 
right in our faces during CES last year. Yeah. And it's really scaled. And as a result, you'll see, I, I saw a lot more about uh, teleoperation, for example, um, a lot more on driver monitoring um, systems, you know, related businesses to the support of a level two, even level three type vehicle and less about we are going to launch X number of vehicles by this date commercially as a robo taxi, except for one person. Right. (laughs) And that's Elon. He's the, he's the holdout. And, uh, and I'm sure that he'll continue to dig in on that one. So that's what at least I know is for 2019. Did you notice anything uh, in terms of like how ADOS became, Hip again, Alex. Well, I would say because I I I, I lack Kirsten's modesty and professionalism that I called this three years ago, and um, and I'm not surprised. Uh, I predict that at Elon uh, in December of 2020 will uh, announce a limited robo taxi service in like one neighborhood. It'll be a three cars. And it's going to operate in limited hours. So you think he's going to go L4? Yeah, but it's going to be like one neighborhood. It's going to be so limited as to be, uh, I mean, by any, not, uh, not meaningful in a, in a business sense, but very meaningful in an optics sense. Yeah. Um, you know, well, it will be meaningful in a business sense in that he'll be able to recognize revenue oh, maybe yeah, at some point, $200. right? Like if, 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 some, if some form of functionality is put out there, then that deferred revenue gets to it's a flow into the, the company. I mean, after the Cybertruck reveal and, and it, everything's happened last, you know, few months as I mean, we can all accept whatever he can do to generate media and satisfy even a, a part of expectations it is almost as good as satisfying meeting expectations. You know, uh, if the fans can say, look, he did do it. It's just not as big as, you know, everyone hoped that's enough to move his stock price. So, um, it's going to be daylight, good weather, like 10 block radius and meaningless. I mean, do you think even, I mean, I don't know, even, even that would be tricky without any kind of like redundancy for everywhere outside well, the, it, the forward. It could just be a campus. I mm. mean, it would have to be so limited as to be unscalable. The whole yeah. point of robo taxi deployments, uh, the big ones that are, you know, everyone wants to, to throw out there is scalability. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like if you can only deploy in one city, you can't, it's not portable, then it's going to be very hard to recoup the billions and billions and billions of dollars. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. Thanks. 
so then how how do right so what should looking forward to 2020 you know if we agree that that technical capabilities are coming a long way in the autonomous space obviously to varying degrees but that the business model is the really challenging part like what are the things that you're going to be looking for um obviously we're not asking you to give away like Argo strategy but maybe like what what would be some of the things that you would look for in other companies to get a sense that they have a, a good handle on what it's going to take to turn these this, this technology into a real product and a real business. My weekly disclaimer, I am not on a ton of cast representing Argo. Right. So and I'll never say anything based on information you know, that I have because I work at Argo. Okay. Uh, but look, the, you, you know, brought up uh, before we started recording the case of uh, the what, reach now, share now situation. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and which, which, and I'd like to hear you repeat what you said before the show started because that was really interesting. And I agree with it. Imagine two companies, uh, two level four companies, very well funded entities, enter a city, and their te- their technology is functionally the same. They have like equivalent safety metrics. They have equivalent messaging. Like they're they're starting, you know, or the same. Point. And one company deploys a um, a pod that is easily with easy ingress and egress that seats four to six people, and the other one deploys a pod that fits two people in some bags, and they they throw them to the same neighborhood. Well, one of those companies is going to do a lot better than the other. We just we don't know what usage patterns are going to be. So even if your technology works perfectly, you know if the, the and the business case seems to make sense. If the product is wrong, you're going to have a problem. And this goes, you know, you, you can see that. And this is why the race to autonomy is only a race if you recognize that your team consists not just of the vehicle, but of the business development people, the partnerships people, um, the product pricing, and the and the form factor of the vehicle itself. Yep. If you put the wrong vehicle in, you know, in the wrong, right neighborhood, or vice versa, you know, the, the right vehicle in the wrong neighborhood, your business you're gonna you might lose a year or three. And that's a the, this is this is the thing. So you know the level four robo taxi deployment at scale situation depends on so many more factors than the technology or even safety. And everyone's been talking about really, I mean, this focus on the safety is, I don't want to say it's a red herring because safety has to be you know, solved. It's, it's, it's a trust issue. But the, I mean, imagine, uh, look at an airline. Airlines rise and fall and die, putting the wrong plane on the wrong route. And that is, that is the, the, the discussion around autonomous vehicles that people aren't happy. Well, and I would say that um, exactly exactly the storyline that you just put out there in terms of what you predicted and and now what we're seeing play out is going to be what makes or breaks automakers, not just AV, you know, startups in the next few years because they are trying to shift away from this traditional business model of you know, producing and selling vehicles to a single consumer. And that's still going to be a core part of their business, you know, for GM and Ford and all the others, but they're clearly trying and experimenting and some are going to fail at it miserably. And we've seen examples of that already. I mean, do you remember a couple of years ago when Ford experimented with a 
lease a car leasing program that you could share with five other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the lease share, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which you know died. And and these types of experiments will happen and as long as they don't pour too much money into it. You know, hopefully they learn from it. But I think we're going to we're going to continue to see what Alex already, you know, described. Um and and maybe the failures will be a little bit bigger um moving forward. Well, let's let's look at um just the the car to go um it's which is now share now. So a year ago um, you know, uh, uh, Reach Now, which is BMW's car sharing system, and Car to Go, which had been around a lot longer, um, which was run by Daimler, um, they merged uh, about a year about a year ago. <laughs> well, actually, one of the the first story I broke last year was that they were going to name it Jerby, uh, which ended up not happening. Um, yeah. Which I would still love to get the inside story of how that all went down. But um, yeah. but but basically now, you know, less than a year after merging them, um, they're withdrawing from the U.S. market completely and. You know, Daimler car to and three and three European cities. By oh, the way. okay, okay. I was focused on the U.S. Yeah. Well, but for two different reasons, which I find interesting. Huh. So, um, you know, the North American markets. They, if you if you read the the statement, it it if you read between the lines, it seems like what they're saying is essentially they never say parking, <laughs> but they talk about infrastructure and the amount of money that would be required in order to make it work is just essentially not worth it. I mean, that's in the European markets, they say low adoption rates. Hmm. So it's interesting. They use different language. The three markets they're leaving um, in Europe are um, I believe London is one and, um, and two others. And in the North America, it's in, in mostly U S cities and then Montreal. In Canada and Vancouver. So I have a, a slightly different take, which sort of echoes Alex's perspective about product being really important. Um, and that is, I think that, you know, I think um, it's been, you know, so my, my book is about Tesla um, being sort of taking a tech company attitude towards um, the traditional car business and, and the challenges there. But I think we've seen a lot of established car companies struggle with sort of new startup type business models. Uh, or business models that require a sort of startup perspective. And I think Cardigo is one of them. And I think um, Cardigo lucked into being really uh, uh, successful because, look, um, the you know anytime you have a fleet business, um, the temptation is going to be for car companies to dump whatever is not selling well into them as a place to just get the products off their book uh, books and maybe make a little bit of, of money off of them. And I think Cardigo was incredibly lucky in that when they started in the US, the vehicles, they, they'd been trying to bring the smart car to the US and make it successful as a, a you know traditional car that you'd sell and, and buy. Um, and that hadn't worked. And so they had a lot of these cars and they ended up dumping them into the car to go fleet. And and just from personal experience here in Portland, I mean, I'm, you know, writing about cars is a very uncool thing in Portland. And when you go to like parties and stuff and people want to talk about a car that's very unusual, and you notice. And and when Car to Go was operating smarts, that happened a lot. People would just bring up like that they used a smart a Car to Go smart, and like they would never own. It was always they would always say the same thing, which is that they would never consider buying or owning or even leasing a smart because it's just a ridiculous car for the American landscape. But as a dockless, it's essentially the car 
scale version of, of a, a dockless scooter where to pick it up and drop it off sort of at will, wherever you want uh, on demand, it worked great because it was tiny, which is not great for a car you own, but is great because uh, for, for shared, because it's easy to uh, find parking for it and park it and to do that in urban areas. Um, and, and then also it was a very simple, almost crude car um, in terms of the interior. And that really made it easy to just jump in and use. And, and then what happened was as that fleet aged, um, Mercedes, instead of understanding that the form factor of that product lent itself perfectly to the business model that, that they were trying to do, they stuck with their traditional incentives and the vehicles that they then needed to had too many, you know, produced and not enough demand for were these Mercedes CLA and GLA sort of compact sedans and crossovers. And so they, they put those in, in the car to go fleet and they did not do as well. And everybody I knew who had loved using the smarts stopped using car to go. And I think the lesson there, I'm, and obviously they, they probably don't want to admit this, but I think the lesson there is that the right product means everything. And that's why I think, you know, it's always going to be hard for a traditional car company. And it's funny because I'm, I'm, you know, oftentimes accused of being a, an auto industry defender, which <laughs> I don't think is accurate. But, but I think in this case, you know, it's very important to understand that these car companies will always have the wrong incentives for that kind of, of business model. Because what you need for that business model is, you know, you develop and design a vehicle just for that. That you're not necessarily going to have huge upside if it does well and it will sell all these. You're going to sell a fixed amount of them and they're going to be a revenue stream and they have to be designed for that business model. And what it takes to design a car for sharing is going to be fundamentally different than what works in a car that can be privately sold. And I think it's going to be very hard for car companies and, and Daimler's proved it. It's very hard for car companies to cross over into this new business model. Well, okay. Um, I don't disagree with all of that, but I do think that it it's... I'm not going to say simplistic view because there's obvious, but there, I think there's more going on than just, just that the product that, that people liked the product, there's also a cost associated with it. Yeah. So a smart car is simply just more modular and easier to repair. And, and the cost of car sharing is a very capitally intensive one. Right. It's, it's a hard business. And so when you, it's not just getting a product that people like, it's also getting a product that's easy to repair and maintain. Right. And you could have, I mean, let's say Mercedes had done S classes and people were like, this is amazing. I love this. This is kick ass. Well, it, people could have loved it and the adoption rates could have been super high and, and maybe they wouldn't have been, but under this scenario, let's pretend that that's what happened. But the cost of maintaining those vehicles would crush any user, um, you know, popularity. So, so I think that there's, there's that added piece of why smart worked as a product. It wasn't just your point, which I agree with. It's also that the cost of maintaining those vehicles was just a lot lower, but that's also a product. Right. That's a, it's a when you, when it's you a think product. about making the making the the business work, it means you have to again, right? Instead of designing a vehicle that's going to be obsolete in a couple of years so that someone buys a new one, like building a car that will last like a million miles and just need interior refurbishment, that's something that's totally alien to the car business um, for private ownership. But that's something that would help make that business work. Um, right. So I agree with you on the product side. I'm just adding in that, like that, that cost is a little bit, yeah. and, you know, it, so when, when the whole share now thing happened, the original merger 
and uh, and then now its demise in in North America. I went back and looked at a story I had written back in 2015 when BMW had merged had a had its uh, car sharing joint venture with Sixth, and it was called Drive Now. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yep. Well, that failed too. And mm. drive the their initial launch was in San Francisco. And I went back and interviewed some people about why what happened there. And in that case, they were completely out of their depth in terms of understanding not just the product but how the product fit within that city, which goes mm. back to your other point about how AVs might or might not, you know, do well in certain cities, Alex's point. Basically there were parking spaces allotted for car sharing vehicles in San Francisco. There were at the time 900 and drive now wasn't allowed to use a single one of them. Mm. And so their business completely failed and they, but they launched in a place where they didn't truly understand the market. So it's that product popularity cost, and also understanding the city in which you are are in understanding what, what model business model is going to work best. And I think that car sharing is what we're seeing in terms of car sharing companies coming and going. Um, and, I think that that is going is going to mirror or going to be very similar or at least forecasting what is going to happen with the rubber taxi um, eventual commercial deployment, except for the costs are going to be even higher yep. than before. So, so speaking of this, um, one of the really interesting things I'm looking forward to in early uh 2020 in January, I think, uh, Cruise, uh, the AV company is going to be releasing um, or showing their first sort of purpose-built product. Um, and uh, CEO of Cruise, Dan Ammon, has a piece on Medium saying, uh, we need to move beyond the car. And he's making the argument that AVs aren't, don't need to be what we think of as cars, that it can be something else. And, and my understanding, based on a few hints, is that they're going to be sharing, you know, some kind of this vehicle is going to be some kind of shared vehicle um, that I think they're hoping will sort of change people's attitude towards shared sort of more public transit is going to maybe kind of blur the line. So some, so you think like a, a, a purpose built vehicle, like what Zooks is doing? Yeah, but like I, think, I get the feeling it's going to be sort of a, a shuttle of some kind, maybe, but that one that's going to still provide um, the sense of, or more of a, a private, a private mobility experience in a shared form factor. That's sort of the general outline that I I'm picking up from, from them. Um, and, and what I think is, uh, is, is interesting about this is that, you know, this is going to be a test of, you know, is it possible for a, 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 a rethought sort of product um, to uh, help, you know, to, to sort of get that, that business model closer to, to something that's going to work. Um, and, uh, I, Alex, I wanted to ask you, um, you, there's a, a, a story in Axios, I think, um, an interview with Brian Selesky, um, my friend, Brian? yeah, CEO of Argo. And he has a, he has a quote that says, we don't pretend that self-driving cars as a technology platform can solve the larger scale issues around congestion and efficiency. My view is it will take a systems approach to solve. Um, obviously, you know, you don't speak for Brian, but I'm just wondering, you know, a, can you sort of expand on, on what he's saying there and be like, 
is this is this a response to what to what right because uh, Dan Ammon's post sort of implies that the right product and the right service can actually have the impact that you know Uber said it would but didn't deliver on which is reduced congestion reduced efficiency or I mean improved efficiency reduced uh, uh, private car ownership um is he saying that 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 Cruz's approach of trying to solve that with the product isn't the right one or that it's not enough or, or what's what's going on here well, it's not in Brian's nature to comment on what anyone else is doing because it's just that's not his personality. He likes to keep his head down and do his work. But look, you know, I agree with Brian, and I've said this for a long time. I mean, we all know AVs alone cannot solve congestion because congestion is not it's a multi it's a multi dimensional problem, and so we're you know taking the human driver out of a, of a robot, of a taxi and making it a robot taxi does nothing for congestion. Unless the only way that AVs alone could reduce congestion is if they were 100% of the vehicles in a given geographic area, and then they were optimized for traffic flow. Yeah. And also sharing because that's uh, to me a key metric. Well, be clear an autonomous vehicle by definition does not have to be shared. It just so happens that, Almost anyone who is sane and investing in this is investing in shared AV fleets. Tesla, you know, and there are a few other companies, but Tesla primarily, you know, they sell cars and these are not shared vehicles. Yeah. Um, they could be, they don't have to be. So if you had, uh, you know, 100% AV penetration within a fence, then, and you optimize, you had some kind of load balancing system, um, but especially, then they then they could be part of you know traffic and congestion mitigation. But the big one, and this goes back again to uh, how you operate your business and what kind of leadership you have is 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 the uh, your AV deployment going to be in, intelligently and happily integrated into a broader ecosystem of other modes. Mm-hmm. You know, will there be, you know, where are your pickup and drop locations? Um, are those locations the same locations as hubs for other modes, scooters, bikes, no. trains? Um, and if you load balance correctly and you make it affordable, um, if you do, you know, what I've talked about, you know, the idea of universal basic mobility, like a mobility floor where every citizen in a city has you know a guaranteed minimum of service and options, then AVs, like anything else, become a part of that system. A critical yeah. component. Now, what AVs the, the goal of AVs, even if they accomplish nothing else, is to be safer than a human driver in situations where humans make a lot of mistakes. And if you look at what happened in New York last week, um, you know, I think five people or five cyclists were killed last week. So there is absolutely no cathartic benefit to driving a car for fun inside New York City. So I wouldn't even I wouldn't make the case that I want to be free to drive in the city. No one's free to drive in Manhattan. Um, but there's a huge case to be made for deploying AVs in urban cores. Um, and uh, I hope that you know companies other than Argo, and I'm pretty confident confident Argo's approach. I hope that everybody who deploys them uh, pays close attention to those relationships in the same way. That uh, the wrong uh, vehicle, the wrong product, can sink. You know, a mul- hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. Um, you know, the a lack of integration with the communities can also sink a company. 
You could be right on top of the modes, um, but you could also ignore pleas yeah. from the community to do something. You could also not pay attention to privacy or yep. the safety of your passengers. Um, and Uber has, you know, <laughs> they're like kind of like uh, what Plato's cave, <laughs> right? They've shown us everything that can go wrong when you, you know, uh, enter cities without prior relationships that are positive. And this is going to play out again in AVs for companies that don't pay attention. So one of the things that I'm going to try and do in 2020, actually, it's like a, I don't usually do New Year's resolutions, but I am going to do one this year. And um, I have a couple of ideas uh, for actually uh, fiction, um, sci-fi about about AVs. And so I want to write a couple of just short little vignettes. Uh, and one of them uh, that just kind of actually occurred to me, I was tweeting about congestion and stuff today. And, and someone mentioned that, um, you know, what sort of what would happen if Tesla were able to deliver on its, its promises about AVs next year, um, or, or really ever um, having because their specific business approach to selling these things is that the car will be in be able to operate while you're not in it, you have zero occupancy vehicles out sort of trying to, you know, pick up you know, writers and stuff. Um, it's actually an amazing dystopian scenario. It's funny. I'm like, I'm so skeptical that it will happen. I hadn't really thought too much about it, but like really it would be dystopian if, if they were able to do that because it would just so dramatically worsen congestion to have everybody trying to put their vehicle out on the road to make them money. Um, gridlock would be, would be terrible, terrible. Well, let's be, let's be clear. There are a lot of, Skeptics and kind of you know people who like to write op eds have thrown that problem out there. But let's just be serious here. If you let's say people were buying vehicles that were level four capable, and uh, on the assumption that they'd be able to rent them out and send them out as robo taxis, and too many people did that, then very rapidly market forces would drive down the price of that of that ride. Right. And suddenly the, the financial modeling these people made over the course of their lease, let's say it's three year, four year lease or financing the car, their financial models will be destroyed if they are exposed to the realities of market forces. <laughs> Do you think that those market forces have played out as you, as you just put it out there for ride hailing? Yes, of course. And they're going to play out that way for any other, for, uh, for well, if you, if, if 10,000 people put 10,000 cars, and when you go put your car in Turo, you can pick your price, but you would be wise to look at the pricing of other vehicles out there before you pick your price. And uh, you will find that pricing, there's a pricing equilibrium that happens on the Turo platform. Now, if you're, if you could put a car on Turo that was autonomous, so you no longer have to pick up and drop it and you've got a dongle in there. Um, no matter what you do, your market forces drive the price down. So I, I hope you, one doesn't project, you know, profitability on that financing or leasing of a vehicle based on that, because you might find yourself um, not making that money. And of course, and and no city will allow this. Cities are going to do to AV companies, I think, what they what they've done to the scooter companies. They're going to require permitting, and because the investment required. To- well, we're already seeing that play yeah. out because the. The investment required to deploy a robotaxi fleet in a city is significant. You need you need a terminal, you need uh, personnel on the ground, you need to maintain them. 
unlike a scooter company, which can enter and leave a city within weeks because the scooters are, are these little things that are basically worthless. Um, you know, they're very cheap and they're, they're easily replaced. That's not the case of an autonomous vehicle. So companies entering cities need to build relationships far in advance um, on multiple levels. Um, and I don't think I'm not very bullish on privately owned robo taxis for a long, long time. I wouldn't say never, but a long time. Mm-hmm. We'll have to plug in to a citywide, uh, you know, traffic control system into which the shared autonomous fleets were already plugged in on a large level. And, you know, if you look at what happened with medallion taxi fleets before, um, before Uber arrived, they got consolidated into, you didn't have 10,000 individual medallion owners. You had a few hundred companies that owned the majority of medallions. And then there were a few outliers, but they needed to keep their vehicles in motion. They needed vehicle uptime. So I, I don't, individually owned rubber taxis is not going to be a great business. Fleet owned? It's not going to be, it's not going to be a great business. However, if, as you just, we've talked about this before, that one of the most important jobs every AV company um, will, most important people, I should say, that every AV person should have on staff is someone who isn't just good at policy, but but really has the ability to explain the company to city officials and start those relationships early in order to be able to work with the city and to deploy. And, and if Tesla, and I put a giant if with italics and quotations and marks around it, manages to do this level four road taxi, those ty- that doesn't that relationship isn't necessary because these are privately owned vehicles. So while I do think that the business model won't work for private owners, I think it will take long enough for that to play out to cause enough chaos and and potentially accidents in some of these cities to ruin it for other companies. I'm an optimist on that. You know, really, I am absolutely not. I could totally see you're already seeing you know calls for or concerns over in Congress, um, and A, some of, some of those discussions that I've seen show an c- incredible lack of understanding, for one, and uh, but also a lot of concern around um, autopilot, but also the, a very, cl- very quickly extending that to AV companies. And that could really hurt AV companies if the bad actor is Tesla or anyone else, right? But, but specifically Tesla because... These are privately owned vehicles. This is not a company op- operating a robo taxi service in the traditional sense. Well, you know, as someone who has two Teslas and loves no, them, actually, you don't. Yeah, <laughs> you have my second Tesla right now. Uh, it is. It is. Uh, I, I have in recent weeks learned that many more people in government um, own Teslas than I thought. Um, I actually think in time that there will see a clearer bifurcation between the perception of Tesla and the AV companies. Uh, I do. But why that, that understanding of how a Tesla operates today and then fast forwarding to a moment in which level four Teslas are flying city streets, you don't see that as problematic? I don't think level four Teslas are going to fly city streets for a long time, if ever. Uh, with the current hardware. Sure, I'd agree. When I said that I thought Elon was going to deploy something in 2020, I'm talking about like <laughs> 10 blocks of Palo Alto where no one goes, you know, or make it three Except, blocks. 
Except I don't think they can operate in California because it would have to be under CPUC, right? I believe. Would they have to get a, a permit to operate a ride hailing, even if it's peer to peer? Yes. When I said that, I what I meant was they're going to do a limited spectacle purely for the optics, which has no, which is not as scalable in any way, and is essentially meaningless to anyone other than fanboys and investors. So, yeah. And also probably their ability to recognize deferred revenue. Right. But my point is, is that it, I don't think that it will take much to still create, let's say, just say an interesting and potentially problematic reaction for, you know, it only, let's look at what happened with the Joshua Brown case. That was one incident, and granted, there have been a few since then, but that caused turmoil within the company, um, as we've we've come to know, um, and and also really made a lot of other companies nervous. And I don't think that even if it was deployed in a limited, a very limited basis, and you still had a Tesla Robo Taxi hit someone or kill someone, which I think we should expect that to happen with any AV company. I think it's going to happen. I, I could see that creating a lot of chaos. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's, I mean, I agree with Alex that it's, it's not easy to expect this to happen at any kind of scale, but even, even on a limited scale, I think the, the lack of redundancy, um, sensor redundancy in, in Tesla's hardware I, I just don't see how it can be done safely, even at at, at low scale. I didn't well safely. I mean, right. as far as I'm concerned, unless un, unless and until Tesla deploys, you know, makes it possible to walk away from your car and your car advances into into a supercharger lot and backs into a spot so a Tesla employee can charge it for you. Tesla has nothing, literally nothing. They're dead to me, and I love my car. I love my cars. But by the way, just to go back about 15 minutes, we're discussing the ADAS, like the future of ADAS versus level four deployments. Uh, you know, I was trying to, and I drive almost a thousand miles a week on, on my uh, Teslas and, you know, Pittsburgh to New York primarily and trying to deconstruct what it is Tesla owners love about autopilot so much and why, and, and, and separate safety versus convenience. There is, there's no question that when I drive, you know, 350 miles in, in one shot using autopilot 99.5% of the time, that what I'm loving is the, the, the lane keeping. The radar crews, I drive other cars, the radar crews in a Tesla is no different than the radar crews in, in a Volvo or a Mercedes Benz or anything else. It's just the auto steer function. That's the only thing people are obsessing over. And they're calling auto steer autopilot. And there's no doubt that Tesla is having limited the intervals between hands off, you know, uh, check in with you know the torque sensor on the steering wheel to something like 15 seconds now, um, maybe 14 seconds has reduced the frequency of crashes attributed to autopilot. But none of that is a safety feature; it's a convenience feature. And if only someone would do a study on the on what convenience is. And its effect on stress reduction. If someone would do that, we might learn a lot about what people really want 
in their cars and what the future of ADAS should be. I don't know how much you're in different cars now, Alex, but how close are other companies to matching the capabilities of Tesla's auto steer feature? Because I would agree that the adaptive cruise, that was a big deal a few years ago. Not so much anymore. A lot have caught up. Uh, I've never, I mean, Super Cruise is the only one that when it was engaged, it was probably like 95% as good and actually keeping the lanes, but it had other, other problems. And I mean, the biggest problem I found in Super Cruise was when it disengages in traffic below a certain speed threshold, I, I forget, I don't know if it was 18 or 24 miles an hour, that it, once it disengages, you can't instantly re-engage it. Mm-hmm. So if you find yourself in traffic, I often do, and I accidentally bump the wheel, or you know, I, I uh, keep my hand on the wheel and my Tesla so as to, uh, as a precaution against an involuntary disengagement, I can just re-engage it right away. And a Cadillac, you can't do that, which means if you fall out of the semi-automation, you can't get back into it, and now you've spent you know, $75,000 in a car, and you might have to wait 15 minutes to re-engage it. And so instead of being a convenience feature, it becomes a gross inconvenience feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's other components to Super Cruise that need some work, uh, but there's something there. Uh, you know, my friend Pete Tenorillo, who was the founder of Trapster, uh, who's been a Tesla guy for years, just got a BMW, I think an X6, which has lane keeping that he said is pretty good. Um, I haven't tested that one yet. Do you guys know if the new X6 have the driver monitoring camera installed? I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, I, I hear something. I don't know if we've ever discussed it, but I predict that in order to meet Euro NCAP, because Tesla is going to, to retain five stars, Euro NCAP standard in a year or two, uh, you'll need a, a, a driver monitoring system. And so in three or four years, um, I think every Tesla is going to have to have a camera. We know that the Model 3 has one that's not currently used. I think people might look back in the future. I, I, I've said, and Matt Farah has said that Model 3s are essentially disposable, the first like disposable car. Um, but I think in the three or four or five years um, that Tesla fans will actually think, consider the first generation like um, pre-camera Model S and X will become collectible because they have autopilot suites without cameras. Mm-hmm. You can still fuck around. Um, not as much as in the early days, but you still can. And you know, Teslas, I think, will become more... Much once the cameras are arrived, much more restrictive in what people can do. Well, this- well, okay, two quick points, and then I'd jump in. Yeah. One, I've gotten in. I can't even tell you how many uh, semantic-based arguments with Tesla comms about how Teslas do have a driver monitoring system, which they don't. Oh, um, so that just that point there. Um, but Sorry, I think they're camera-based driver monitoring. Right, right. No, you. I heard you say camera based, but I, you know, just for the listening public here, um, that is, uh, in terms of the company pr- perspective, there is one. But uh, I think that your prediction about driver monitoring systems, not just in Teslas but in other vehicles, is right spot on because we're already seeing that with, for example, like the Ford EV, the Mustang inspired, the Mach E has. A driver monitoring system that's super low key. I mean, you wouldn't notice it, and it is there for future use of some kind. Right. It'll come with an OTA update, right? 
Right, right. So I think that you're going to be seeing that. And this isn't some, you know, novelty, concepty car. This is a vehicle that they intend and hope to mass produce, right? I mean, it might not be as popular as the F-150, but the fact that they're, they are putting that in that vehicle is, is to me a sign that uh, when a major auto manufacturer like Ford does that and they're putting it in a vehicle, granted, a newer um, idea, a newer vehicle, but one that's intended to be produced at volume, it speaks to what we, I think, what we'll see in the future. It is yeah. interesting that, uh, you know, Scene Machines has been like kind of the, I guess, best known DMS company, but they're like a, they're like a penny stock, aren't they? Like, like I would think that investor, you know, I, I don't hold an interest in C machines and I, I, this is not a finance show, but it's weird to me that if DMSs are inevitable, I mean, every new car is going to have one in, in a few years. Why isn't there more activity in the DMS sector? Like where are all the, all the DMS startups related is, you know, the Audi level three was supposed to show up and never did. And, and you've had some fights online with some people about level three, you know, Tesla fans, idiots. <sighs> uh, where are the transition monitoring systems like, or transition manage, management systems? Like where are the startups who are the bridge between driver monitoring and semi-automated um, functionality and, you know, the sensor hardware? Like where is that? Like it sounds kind of like you're – uh, your friends that oh god, I know I'm I'm blanking on their name, uh, but he's been on the show. Uh, Adam Cogtech. Yeah, Adam Cogtech. Right. They, they kind of are, but I mean, they solve part of it, but they're really like you know second gen ADA, uh DMS. Right. Still, right. Still, well, you know something that's you know something you're right because their second generation product is cognition management. Um, right. But cog- the cognition management that they do, let's assume it works perfectly still needs one more thing. It needs a, uh, like a warning types. There needs to be a common system of warning types, uh, legit, you know, of intervals, hands off, hands on, eyes up, eyes down intervals, so- sounds and visual warnings that, um, that people can understand when they just get in and they just drive. And then the Adam system plus, you know, a scene machines, it just sits there and resolves all of it. And I think real lack of intellectual foresight, some, maybe it's some of the OEMs. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So, so I, I think I'm going to be a little contrarian here, but, but also agree with you. Um, I agree that, that what you said about, about sort of these early, you know, the Model S and the Model X uh, that offer autopilot without any kind of driver monitor, I think it will be popular because, and it, we discussed this a little before in the past, but um, what people want is not what's is not what's safe. Yeah. I don't think people want safety. People want convenience features, and I think people want the ability to you know not pay a ton. I mean, yeah, Teslas are expensive, but autopilot for you know uh, the level of capability um, because it allows people to steal back a little bit more of the time that they're stuck in the car. Mm. I think for well-off people, for whom you know money is worth less to them than time. You know, they're, they're really going to want that. And I think that, you know, as ADAS becomes more ubiquitous, but, 
you know, it's going to also come with the driver monitoring systems that don't allow you to pull out your phone and do things that are unsafe, but that which people want to do. I think the bloom is going to come off the rose a little bit. And because I think fundamentally what Tesla proves is that, you know, the, the most successful ADAS is actually the least safe one. And it's, it's so counterintuitive because ADAS has always been sold as a safety system, including by Tesla. And Tesla continues to claim that, that their system improves safety, but I don't think it does. I think it genuinely that what people, people love about it is the fact that it allows them to do unsafe stuff more than they would be able to otherwise. But we're seeing that change, right? I mean, as Alex suggested. Well, I think I think as more as DMS becomes more standardized and or, or more ubiquitous and and maybe even required in certain markets for for ADAS systems, I think again the ADAS is going to become less popular because it's no longer going to let them do what they want to do, which is use the system unsafely. Yeah, that's uh, I call that the uh, uh, FAF nice. fuck around factor, <laughs> <laughs> high fast factor. It's more fun. It's it's people like the freedom to be able to do what they want, and it it is absolutely part of that customer base. Yep. It'll be interesting to see if that customer base change as the customer base grows. Will that change? Um, I haven't seen too much evidence of it changing, though. Yeah. Well, and I think I think regulators are also one of the things we're learning is they they just have a really hard time with this stuff. Uh, no regulator is set up. To evaluate. even define, evaluate or, or define what is predictable abuse, um, and I think they don't want to, especially because in Tesla's case, um, you know, declaring autopilot defective due to predictable abuse would effectively kill the company. And I don't think regulators want that blood on their hands. Mm. Um, I think you know we're learning that, and so and so who knows? Maybe we'll even see more companies. Um, I know I know a lot of companies really don't like what Tesla has done because they, they feel it's unsafe and they feel it's irresponsible and it puts tech, the technology broadly at risk. But you know you can't argue with their success in a way. And we may well see more companies actually follow them down this unsafe route because it's what the market wants. Well, I would actually say the unsafe part of what I've seen other companies do is just that it is com- the whole user experience and the user interface is either so nuanced or and also complex that people don't know when they're in adaptive cruise sometimes mode mode confusion and and so that's where i see so it might be restrictive but if you get used to it enough and you just don't even know what you're doing or when it when it's deployed or not that to me is actually a bigger issue yeah. which maybe is a conversation for another day yep and speaking of which we are we are running out of time here i'm going to disagree I don't think any other companies are going to follow Tesla down this road uh, at all. Um, and I would also argue that Tesla's done one thing very well that no one else has nailed. I, I, the mode confusion in a Tesla is greatly reduced today versus a year or two ago. Hmm. You know, it, the majority of people I know in Teslas, they know exactly what mode they're in. The, 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 right. I wasn't speaking about Tesla. I was talking about like buying any brand new um, you know, pick a a mass market provider of vehicles and their ADAS. Oh, yeah. It can be confusing to know what what is deployed when. I mean, I just I was just drove spent some time in the Taycan. I don't know Uh-oh. how you felt about some of de- deploying the cruise control, for example, 
and knowing when you were in it or not wasn't the easiest. Are you using the word suboptimal? It was suboptimal. It was a great car to drive, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, (laughs) it was, it just, it, it took a lot to figure out exactly when I was, once I figured it out, it was fine, but I was trying to imagine just anyone going into that vehicle and, and that's just one example. There are many others. Uh, there, uh, I agree with you totally. I mean, I love its icon, but it is still it's what the innovation that came, went into the battery powertrain and like you know dynamics uh, is not matched by the ADAS UI, and that's true of all, pretty much every manufacturer on the planet, other than Tesla and Cadillac in in you know, this Super Cruise system. Um, you know, I'm hoping that somebody like Cog, the Adam Cogtech guys and Scene Machines, or I don't know, some of these other ADAS folks, I forget, some uh, DMS folks, somebody will come to market with a system as like holistically well thought out as the Tesla UI, because it is a good UI. Um, and they'll do that for DMS and transition management. You're such a, you, you've been fully converted. And I think that this, uh, this conversation about how amazing tesla is now it's, no, it's the, the ui we're talking about we're talking about 2019 and just to be clear the ui you can clearly see that a single team had a vision musk came in they had a discussion and the result is what you see the model three which the ui is better in most ways not all than an esx and you can see how in every other oem uh that it's not one team. There's multiple teams with different pieces of hardware and software. And even suppliers. Yeah. And there's like a, a project manager is managing all the politics of what has to go in the dash. And you can see it, you feel it. It's like the matrix. Like you, you can't put your finger on it and then and then you drive the car and suddenly you you see. Hmm. And you know, and that's and so that's what people are mistaking the slick this the quality of the Tesla UI with a lot of other things, including capability, convenience, yeah. yada, yada, yada. But there's no, there's no question that there's a process in design and execution that is unified, right or wrong, at Tesla, and it's dis, it's not unified at other places. Yeah. So the path to, to Nirvana in the next level is to to experience this UI. Is what you're saying? I'll tell you, I, what I, I can't. Recently, I was on a plane and I from one city to another, and I can't name the cities, but on that plane. There must have been like half the management of from startups and OEMs working in ADAS and a lot of AV guys on this plane. And the conversation, you know, up and down the aisles was you know about safety. And multiple people were saying, "So, have you dr- use autopilot?" And the answer on the other side was often no. Like, I don't understand how these companies can be building next generation stuff without using it and understanding what doesn't work about it. Do you think that they were? Um, do you think that they were being coy, though? That they that they had been? Because I know that it's common practice to tear down vehicles, and not enough people are involved in the teardowns or reading like the learnings. Okay, uh, they not. They might. I mean, listen. Listening to Atonicast is is very educational, and last week's episode and the one before were very good. Oh, well, great. Uh, but there's no, there's no substitute for actually getting in the cars and understanding what works or what doesn't. And this is the part where Alex would normally provide his referral code to Tesla's, but since we don't allow that, he can't. I would, I would refuse. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe it. I think the challenge is not right. Well, next week, I think we're going to do some 
uh, put our prediction forecasting hats on yep. and any final thoughts for 2019? <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's the silence is yeah. deafening on that one. And so thank you for listening to the Atonicast and come back next week. <laughs>